Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to Colton Corner, Lafayette's Interfaith Podcast. My name is Lisa Green. I am the Interfaith Fellow. I work for Chaplain Alex Hendrickson. Um, and I am so overjoyed to be joined by the fabulous, the wonderful Rabbi Jess Lenza. Um, Jess is, um, can I call you Jess? <laughs> yeah, you can call uh, me Jess. Amazing. Okay. Jess is an alum from the class of 2005 um, and is the greatest rabbi, has come back to Hillel twice and led services so beautifully. And I'm just so honored to be joined by her today. Um, Rabbi Lenza, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? And uh, and for anybody who doesn't know, how would you describe your faith tradition? Well, well thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's um, very exciting um, to be on this podcast. Uh, when I was a student at Lafayette, we didn't have podcasts, um, uh, but we did have a radio station. And uh, and that was like sort of our, I don't know, cre audio creative outlet. So it's fun to see this new iteration um, and to be a part of it. So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, how would I describe my faith tradition? Wow, that's a very <laughs> complex question. Um, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to answer that succinctly because I think that there are really many different layers to how I see um, my belief system integrated into my life and where those beliefs originate from. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think that Maybe I'll say this. I look at Judaism as an ancient wellness practice. It is, um, I think, uh, like guidance for us as human beings to find ways to make our lives meaningful, to um, advance the goal of making this world a better place. Um and I think it's meant to give us opportunities for us to connect to ourselves as individuals, like our inner selves, ourselves as a community and ourselves as, um, as part of a spectrum in time, a long legacy of humanity. Wow. And so I think when religion is operating at its best, it helps you be the best person you can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I, I guess that's what I think of when I think about my faith tradition. Like what it what are the things, the ideas, the practices that will help me be the best version of myself? Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I, I think that's such an excellent point because I think I've known a lot of people who are averse to religion who have seen it for, you know, when it's fallen into the wrong hands and how it's been used as a tool to divide. But I feel like, you know, my personal mission, the mission of this show is for it to bring out the best in people and to bring people together as a community. Um, so that's that's exactly right, you know. Yeah, and I think I think it's like religion is like any other powerful like idea which is it can be wielded for enormous good and it can be wielded for enormous evil um and and we certainly see that play out in history um and i and and so it's funny um 
because I, I like I know that I'm a literal member of the clergy, like I'm an actual rabbi, right? But I, I kind of bristle when people call me religious um, <laughs> because, <laughs> because of the like, at least the American connotation that being religious is somebody who's like fanatical or, um, you know, a science denier or something like that. Um, and so that makes me really uncomfortable because right. uh, I don't consider myself to be fanatical. I don't consider myself to be, you know, I believe in science. I believe in, you know, fact, things like that. Um, and I, and I, and I think that there's, it, there's a lot of suspicion around religion in our yeah. predominantly in America, secular society, let's say Northeast America, secular societies. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a healthy kind of skepticism. I think, and, uh, and I, and that's baked into what Judaism is, right? So one of the reasons why I gravitate towards Judaism um, is because of this like priority of um, using your intellect to question and challenge, right? Um, and 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 then to discover your own unique understanding of it. That there's a decentralization around Jewish practice, which I think prioritizes the individual. Um, and and that to me is really important. Um, my my online moniker is the Rebel Rabbi, um, <laughs> and I, I earned that, or I earned that because I feel like I don't want to be, I don't want anybody else to tell me what I believe. Absolutely, I, I want to be able to discover that on my own, and sometimes that leads me to be maybe irreverent or a kind of classic or something like that. I love it. No, that's exact. That's so true. And I always tell people, you know, that's my favorite part of Judaism. Just this idea that not only are you allowed, but you're encouraged to question. That's such a Jewish concept and notion. You know, that there is. It's funny. Um, there is this um this program that we've been asked to do, um, where people you know ask questions about Judaism, and we give a kind of simple point blank answer. And I've said, well, you know, first of all, two Jews, three opinions. Second of all, just almost no question has an answer like that. It's almost every question can be answered with, well, it kind of depends. You know, <laughs> it could be X thing, it could be Y thing, could be some combination, could be neither. <laughs> you know, it's it's just all very fluid. Um, I love that. Well, I, and, I, and and also it's 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 fluid, but it's because Judaism has such a long history, like I don't know, four thousand ish years, um, and it has gone through so many different iterations, and it developed in many different areas of the world, um, embedded within Judaism, within mainstream Jewish practice, is an incredible diversity of ideas. So like, you know, on any singular topic, you can find the idea and its opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, a, you know, a law of physics or something, right? Like that there's, 
that there's this thing. And then the exact opposite of that thing also exists. And they're somehow both Jewish ideas. And neither is right or wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talk about this all the time. I talk about this probably every time I lead services, the notion that, you know, 52% of American Jews are atheist or agnostic, you know, at least. Um, and just this notion that, right, I think religion and re religious identity is so often conflated with God or one idea of God. And that's just not how Judaism operates. You know? Yeah. Um, I think I can't, you know, I can't remember who said this, but um, uh, this is my favorite sort of like saying about this topic that in Judaism, you can have no more than one God. Less. Okay. I love that. That's amazing. I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah, because and 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 it's it's. I I think, it Judaism has a very different orientation to religion than let's say um, uh, Christianity, where Christianity is a faith first religion. You have to believe in Jesus Christ right. in order to be Christian. Yeah, and if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and God, you cannot be Christian. You can be a part of a Christian community, but you yourself are not, you don't, you don't meet the eligibility for that. Yeah. But in, at least as far as I understand it. Um, but in Judaism, we are a practice first religion. So in the Torah, when the Israelites, um, receive revelation at Mount Sinai, when they receive the Torah, um, when it is revealed to them at Mount Sinai, immediately afterwards, um, they respond, we will do it, and then we will understand it. And that kind of process <coughs> of a practice first, like I can control my actions, more or less, I can't control <coughs> my beliefs my feelings, my emotions, I can try and shape them maybe, but I can't control them. And that to me really works because um, like starting with the actual doing of the thing and having a kind of vague hope that at, that at some point I'll understand it or I'll have some kind of emotional or intellectual or spiritual connection to it is I, I think more accomplishable than um than the demand of having that feeling or belief and then the practice stemming from it it, it just makes more sense to me oh definitely yeah right and I'm so excited to delve into you know how you came to your understanding of your beliefs and what role Judaism plays in your life and I'm curious, you know, what is your very first memory related to Jewish tradition, religious identity, um, anything around faith? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I actually, I, I actually grew up in a Catholic family. I was raised Catholic. Really? Uh-huh. Um, and so <laughs> when I, um, I have one Jewish grandparent, my paternal, my father's mother, uh, my paternal grandmother, Evelyn, she was Jewish. Um, she died before I was born. So I never got to meet her. 
Um, and she married my grandfather, who was Roman Catholic. Um, my mom, um, she's first generation American. Her parents were, um, Italian immigrants, also Roman Catholic. And so when my mom met my biological father, the two of them got married in a Catholic church because my dad and his brother were raised, um, (laughs) a religiously. Um, so when my grandmother and my grandfather got married, they decided they weren't going to practice either religion in the home and, um, and that their children would sort of determine what they wanted to do later on. Wow. Um, and you know, this was, uh, I don't know exactly when my grandparents got married, but it was at a time where Jewish people marrying non-Jewish people was like not, (laughs) not nearly as accepted as it is now. And her, um, her family who were Orthodox, um, they said Kaddish for her. They said the prayer for the dead when she got married to my grandfather, because, um, because in traditional Judaism, or at least some communities, um, when you marry outside of the religion, it's like you excommunicate that person. They are now no longer part of your community. They've sort of betrayed you. Um, And luckily, um, because my grandfather was very charismatic and, um, you know, kind of like a good guy, he, uh, he kind of won them over. And so she was able to have a relationship with her family. Um, So, you know, I guess (laughs) that's sort of, that's sort of the background. Um, When, when my sister and I were born, my parents um, raised us in the church because my mom had a a faith tradition. My dad really didn't. Um, But my mom had been very close to her mother-in-law to, to Evelyn, my Jewish grandmother. And um, I think that it was a way of honoring her that she tried to incorporate like little Jewish traditions into her home. And so like she would give us little Hanukkah presents and she was the one who made sure that we went to a Seder at some, you know, family member's house or something. And I, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly why, but I felt, um, really drawn towards Judaism very early on. Um, I, really the earliest time that I can remember um, is about when I was seven years old, where I started to be, to ask a lot of questions um, at my church. Um, (laughs) So many questions. Um, I was precocious. Mm. I was um, spiritually intuitive. I felt like I had a connection to that, which is beyond. Um, And so I started asking questions. And now you have to understand, like my like Sunday school, my CCD teachers were volunteer parents who had like worksheets that we were supposed to like color in about like Jesus loves you. Right. Like very, I mean, like the lesson plan was like crafts. Right. (laughs) And I'm sitting there at seven years old and I'm like, if there's only one God, why do we have to pray to Jesus? Or if God is everywhere, why do I need to talk to a priest? So I'm asking these questions and they clearly like, 
like they don't know, or maybe they don't think it's important enough to explain to a seven-year-old or whatever. So they, um, would they just try and change the subject or something? Or? Yeah, like, all right, Jessica, get back to coloring kind of thing. And I was like very wow. <laughs> indignant about that, like that I was being dismissed. Yeah. Um, wow. And so um, I started to feel like, well, then I don't want to be a part of here. Like, if you're not going to yeah. answer these questions, like, I don't want to, I don't want to play your games, basically. Wow. Um, and I went to, and I was preparing for my first communion, which is like a very big deal in, in Catholicism. Um, and I was not happy about it. <laughs> um, and I, um, at, during that time, I went to one of my cousin's bar mitzvahs yeah. and, um, what I remember from that bar mitzvah was the music in the synagogue. Wow. And I, I remember hearing the melody, which now I know it's the opening to the Amidah. It's the opening to a section of prayers which is kind of like the climax of the prayer service. And I remember that melody and I was in the lobby of the, of the synagogue. And I was sort of like dancing to it, singing and dancing to it. And I was like, sort of like, jumping between the squares and the floor of the synagogue lobby. And I just remember feeling like, oh, this is where I belong. Wow. And um, I, as you're preparing, when you're preparing for your communion, one of the things that you do is you have your first holy confession. And so um, I, I was like going to make this my moment where I was going to confront the priest I about these questions that I had. I was like, I had like such chutzpah, like, I mean, seriously. Um, so I sat down with him and I don't know, they ask you something like, you know, what are your sins or whatever? And I was like, well, Jesus isn't the son of God. That, of that was my, that was my opener. Like that was. I'm <laughs> obsessed of your type. That was, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I didn't get right to the point here. Oh, okay. First of all. Here's my first issue. Yeah. And, and, uh, oh man, he just did not address it at all. He pretty much dismissed it, told me to say a bunch of Hail Marys or whatever. I don't remember. Oh, but, but at that point, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. So I went home and I told my mom, I want to be Jewish. Wow. And, and she, and she said, What do you mean you want to be Jewish? Do you even know what it means that you want to be Jewish? And I was like, yeah, it means we go to temple instead of going to church. Wow. And she said, do you know what Jews believe? And I said, no. Yeah. And she said, well, um, Christians believe the Messiah has come and Jews are still waiting. Yeah. And I said, okay, what's a Messiah? <laughs> and she said, okay, I have no idea. She said, it's the person who saves the world. Wow. And I was like, Psh obviously the messiah hasn't come yet well bad things are still happening look at this world <laughs> look at the world like you just proved my point right like exactly and then, and then my mom like switches like tactics and she says you you we you're going to have a communion in a couple of weeks we have all these people coming for your communion in a couple of weeks 
um, what do you want me to do? You want me to take you to the rabbi? And I was like, yes, I do. And she was like, what the rabbi's going to laugh at you. And I was like, I don't care. Take me to the rabbi. And she was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're going to get up there. You're going to, cause I, I told her I would, I would refuse to say the our father and the hail Mary that I wouldn't eat the wafer. Like I was like, there's no way she was like, you're not, you're going to, you're going to go up there. Right. And, and I said, fine. When I'm 18 years old, it's the first thing I'm going to do. Like my big rebellious stage was that I was going to like become Jewish. Oh, it's amazing. And, and like I did, I, I did, you know, get up there and I said the, our father and a hail Mary. And I became, you know, I, I had my communion. Um, and then I also starred in my Sunday school's production of the last supper as Jesus. That's right. I mean, the Jew, sure. <laughs> you know, you know. You know? This is my body. This is my blood. That's yep. how old how old are you when you get your first communion? Seven or eight. Wow. And you knew you said, I'm seven or eight, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew in my heart. Yeah. I mean, I it's I can tell you now why intellectually and spiritually Judaism is a match for me. I cannot tell you why it felt so um it felt so right for me so early on it spoke and with basically no like there were no jewish people in my town or anything like that it's not like i had jewish friends originally where's your hometown um i grew up in long valley new jersey which is um like a very small town in northwest jersey and i think there were maybe like two jewish people or three jewish people in my whole school or something like it was very, it was definitely not like I was getting it from my peers or anything. But do you remember early on when your mom's bringing you to the Seder and giving you the Hanukkah presents, did you feel uniquely connected to those two? I did. <laughs> I, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't the holidays really. It was the, it was the fact that I felt like I felt like like Christian theology was not uh, it, it it did not match my I guess natural inclination towards towards spirituality like it was just there was something that was a misfit there for me um, and you know not to like I, I personally believe that whatever faith works for you is the faith that works for you. Like, I don't think that there's like one superior or only right truth. Um, and it just didn't, it just didn't work for me. And, um, I will also say like, uh, I, like I'm not exactly like a supernatural kind of, like, I'm not a person who kind of believes in that, but there was this feeling when I went on to study Judaism and to prepare for my conversion that I was not learning things, I was remembering them. And and that's the best way that I can describe that. And um, I do a lot of work with um, people who are um, looking to convert to Judaism and many of them say a similar thing. Yeah, wow. That that there's some kind of ancestral inherited thing. And, And there's a midrash, there's a story about how um, a Jewish story about how when we are in utero, 
when we are being formed, um, uh, the angels teach us every bit of Torah. They teach us all of Jewish learning. And then when we're born, one of the angels um, pokes us on our Cupid's bow right here. And it makes us forget everything that we learned in utero. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to relearn that. Wow. How about that? And um, Which I think is sort of like a, to me, that story is um, kind of connected to how I feel about, you know, about discovering Judaism, that it was very much uh, kind of like a, there was some cosmic familiarity about it for me. I wonder, do you feel like it was connecting you to Evelyn? Absolutely. Like, I think, um, so both of my grandmothers died before I was born, unfortunately. Um, my mother's mother, her name was Erminia, and um, she had a beautiful voice. And um, so when I sing Jewish music, yeah. I feel this sort of like, connection to the two of them wow um you know and i don't know what my italian grandmother would have thought about me converting to judaism (laughs) um but i hope that um i hope that i've made both of them proud wow that's so that's so beautiful and special and i yeah i i know that pride is there um i'm curious though from that moment of defiance of a fabulous incredible you know i'm a i'm a jew get used to it you know from 8 to 18 before you can formally convert what is that time like are you learning more about judaism on your own are you you know kind of forced to engage more with catholicism <laughs> yeah so um basically after i had you know start as jesus and you know um <laughs> <laughs> and taking communion and all that. Jesus to um, rabbi. Well, he was a rabbi, you know. <laughs> look, I challenge you to find another rabbi. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Please, please find another <laughs> rabbi who started as Jesus in her childhood. Okay. Um. Anyway, so I didn't have to wait until I was 18. My parents divorced um, and um, my mom met my stepfather, who I call my Abba, which means dad in Hebrew, um, because he's really, he's really my dad. Um, And so I was very fortunate that when I was 12 years old, he sat me down. It was the, it was during the summer and he said, religion is a really important part of an adult's life. And I think you should explore it. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. You can go back to church. You can go to a different church. Because we lived in New Jersey, there was a Buddhist temple about 30 or 45 minutes away from us. There is a a mosque um, not too far from us. There is a Hindu temple. And I said to him, I was like, well, bring me to a synagogue. And my stepfather is Jewish. So he brought me to the Reform Synagogue near me. And I met Rabbi Joel Sothin and um, I'm 12 years old and I'm in his office and he did not laugh at me when I told him I wanted to convert to Judaism. And that was an incredibly important thing Absolutely. that, that um, he took me seriously. He did not patronize me. He was not condescending. 
he accepted my interest as being genuine. And he said, okay, if you want to do this, then you're going to need to to go to tutoring once a week. You're going to need to learn Hebrew with the adult Hebrew class. You're going to join the social action committee. You're going to join the youth group. You're going to go to Monday night school, which was the, the, um, the, my contemporary age group. So my age group had basically finished regular religious school. And now they were in confirmation class, mm -hmm. which is like the next step in, um, a ceremony that you do when you're about 16 in Judaism, in Reformed Judaism. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, great. So I did. I did all of those things. Um, and it was just like a, an amazing experience. It was like, a, it was really a very nurturing community. And I was, and I just kind of like soaked it all up. I really loved it. And um, synagogue was very much where I met my friends. So most of my, most of the people in my synagogue went to a different school um, that had a lot more Jewish kids in it. Um, and so that, that was really like my social outlet also. Um, and so I studied and prepared for three years from when I was 12 until I was 15. And, um, during Hanukkah, um, I officially converted, um, I went to the mikvah, which is a ritual bath. Um, and then I had what's called a Beit Din, which is, an interview with um, rabbis and or cantors or senior Jewish professionals, uh, just to make sure that you're um, that you're not being coerced into converting, that you are prepared for converting, all of that. Um, and then we did this really small ceremony in front of the ark in my sanctuary on like a weekday morning, um, and it was really beautiful. And um, and then a month later, I turned 16 and I became a bat mitzvah. So I was preparing for my conversion and bat mitzvah at the same time. So my sweet 16 was my bat mitzvah. That's so cool. <laughs> which was very cool. And then um, later that spring, um, we had this confirmation ceremony um, with my peers. And, um, and then that summer, I went to Israel for the first time. I spent about six weeks in Israel on a teen trip. Wow. And then that fall, I chanted Torah for my synagogue at, during the high holidays and then became the senior youth group president. And this is all in less than a year. Wow, that's incredible. That but it makes sense because it was so many years building up to it. Uh, yeah, it was like I, I kind of caught up, I guess, in this like one year. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, but it was also it was just like all of it felt very like natural and um exactly what I should be doing. And it's funny because I'm still close to Rabbi Safin today. Um, he's, he lives in the city, um, just like I do. And, um, and like, he's talked to me since then. And he, he said, you have no idea how, and he used the word extraordinary. <laughs> I think he was trying to communicate like how unusual, um, it was to have, uh, to have a, <laughs> a 12 year old um, child come into your office and say, I want to be Jewish when most 12 year olds coming into a rabbi's office are trying to do their best to like not do Jewish Get things. Out of Judaism. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was like, you have no idea what that was like for me as a rabbi. And I was sort of like, Oh, I, I never thought about it as being unusual because it was just ex ex obvious to me. But I'm so, so fortunate that I had I really it, like what what a privilege that I had. I had parents 
who were willing to listen to me and what I wanted, who, who were, um, who were supportive in that. I, I don't take that for granted. Um, I, I look at my mother's relationship to her mother-in-law to Evelyn as kind of a Ruth Naomi, um, uh, relationship. So in the, in the Hebrew Bible, we have the book of Ruth and in it, we, um, we learn about Ruth who is a Moabite. She's not Israelite. She marries into an Israelite family. Her husband dies and she, um, remains committed to her, um, to her mother-in-law who's the only real surviving member of that family. And Ruth and Naomi have this beautiful, loving, loyal relationship that I feel is, you know, um, similar to what my mom and, and my grandmother experienced. And my mom in a very separate way decided to convert to Judaism also. Really? Was it so wow. yeah. That's wild? Was it influenced by, by you, by her husband? I think, it, I think she has always been curious about Judaism. I think that I don't know if she would have converted if my stepfather hadn't come along, but he wasn't the one who was pushing us to do this. He was kind of curious on his own and was like sort of interested in understanding Judaism and spirituality and religion for himself. And they took an intro to Judaism class together. And I think that she like, and also that I was interested in it, you know, like we all sort of became part of the synagogue community and really like developed, but really like very separately. Um, my biological sister is not Jewish. She, or, I mean, she has Jewish ancestry the same way I do, but she does, she does not acknowledge herself as being identify as being, um, a Jewish person. Um, and so we had this kind of like interesting, I don't know, like family mosaic of, religious identities. Um, and you know, like I said, I feel, I feel very honored, very privileged that my mom was open to it, that my stepfather made it possible, um, that the rabbi that I met is the rabbi that I met, um, who took me seriously. Um, and that the community that I joined Temple Shalom in Sakasana, New Jersey, I mean, it was just like, it was the best place that I, I could have been at. Um, and I'll tell you this kind of remarkable fact. So, um, I told you about my grandmother's family that they were Orthodox. So my grandmother died of, she had ovarian uterine and breast cancer. Um, and she knew she was dying. Um, and so she was in the hospital and her family's rabbi came to see her and he basically, uh, manipulated her into donating money to the, to his community, um, sort of implying that he would do her funeral, Oh, but then he refused to do her funeral because she wanted to be married. She wanted to be buried next to her husband in a non-Jewish cemetery. Oh, God. And so after she died and now the only rabbi right now refuses to do her funeral, um, the family was scrambling, trying to find somebody. And one of the cousins had joined a synagogue and um, they had a new rabbi there and was like, well, we'll ask him to do it. 
And he did. He came and he showed up and he officiated over her funeral. And the rabbi that did that was my rabbi, Rabbi Joel Sothen, who um, very coincidentally was the, the new rabbi at Temple Shalom in Sukkasana, New Jersey. And my cousins had, you know, contacted and he was, and he, he did that kindness. He, he and um, I mean, if I'm thinking about my grandmother, right? Like, oof, that is quite a, yeah. So uh, there's, there's a lot about, um, there's a lot about my path to Judaism and Jewish leadership that feels sort of like a little too coincidental. Yeah. Like there's just like a little too much there to be. Yeah. Just- I, I think it was faded. I think it was, I think she's watching over you, you know, and there is I mean, that piece of living on. Like maybe, I, I don't know. I, I just, I know that like, I guess I tried to be authentic to who I am and this was who I was and what I, it just, the, the idea that it led me to this, um, to this really loving community and to, to a place that allowed me to develop my leadership skills, to give me real responsibility, to, um, honor the person that I was becoming, like all of those things were really important to me. And, I got some of that in my secular school, but it was absolutely my synagogue that made that possible. And, and just to, to brag a little bit more about, uh, Rabbi Safin, um, I think there were maybe 14 kids in my confirmation class. Um, several of us have become rabbis or cantors or Jewish professionals in some way. I mean, like uh, it's, it's really like the impact that he has had is I, I think astounding. Um, and, I, I'm very lucky, very lucky, incredibly fortunate that he is my rabbi. I can't believe that. Yeah. He did Evelyn's funeral and then, and then had you come into his office at 12. I mean, what a magical full circle moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so curious about the influence of your, of your stepdad though, of your Abba, you know, and I think about how, how did he and your mom meet? Um, so my Abba is a retired pediatrician. Um, and so they met because he was my pediatrician. Wow. So you brought yeah. him into her life. <laughs> Me and my sister, I guess. Uh, you know, we lived in a small town and it was like 90% of the people went to this one pediatric practice. Um, and um, when I was little, um, he used to call me red because I had red <laughs> hair. And I was obsessed with horseback riding and he raised Arabian horses and my stepsister was a champion horseback rider. Um, and so one of his exam rooms had these horse ribbons like lined all over the room. And I like loved that room. Like that was the room that I wanted to be in. Um, and I, so I've really kind of like fond memories of him as like just my care, you know, provider. (laughs) Um, But um, my mom ended up working as, um, as like a a counselor, a nutrition counselor for his um, pediatric practice, um, working with like teens who were, um, you know, looking to live healthier lifestyles. And so um, that sort of part-time position allowed her to get to know him in a more personal way. And so um, they started 
uh, to date. And, um, and then, but he and I had a really natural, like, um, loving relationship pretty early on. Um, I like, he's, he's a really smart person. He is, um, he, he's like a very gentle person, but also a really strong person. Um, he somehow struck the right balance of being like a, a stepfather. Um, and, uh, I don't think, I, I think being a step parent can be a hard thing to navigate, but he really understood what that was. Um, and then when it was clear that, um, my relationship with my biological father was, you know, insufficient that he stepped in even more. Um, and, um, pretty early on, I, I started calling him Abba. That's so beautiful. And, and he really hadn't had, it sounds like a much of a Jewish identity before meeting you, like you helped each other. Yeah, I think he, I, I mean, I think that he has, just like my mom, I think he's always been interested in philosophy and religion. I think he has a real appreciation for history. And I think that as, as adults grow and mature, um, you start, you want to, you want to understand how to infuse meaning in your life. And so I, I feel like at that point in his life, he was looking for, for that. And he had the time and space and energy, no longer having very young kids and his practice being very well established. I, I think he had the opportunity to, to, to use his discretionary time in that way to develop intellectually and spiritually. And I think my curiosity and my mom's curiosity and his curiosity, like it all just sort of coincided that it became something that we did together. Um, and it, it, we did, we, we also did like some other things together, like my high school English teacher who recently um, passed away like a couple of years ago, um, Mr. Cayazo, Mr. Cayazo, um, at back to school night, he said, um, we're going to be, we're going to be reading all of these class classics. And if you want, I will send home extra books with your, with your child and you can read along with them. And the oh. only parents that took them, took him up on that offer were mine. Oh. And, and so like, we, we would have, like, we would read the books together. We would have these dinner conversations or we would be studying, they would go to their intro class or I'd be at my tutoring and we would have these conversations about philosophy, religion, literature, and all of that. And it, it's, it, 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 it was the kind, it really fostered this kind of household this family experience that was one that was committed towards lifelong learning. And I, I think that is really important to me. And that shift happened when my ABBA became a part of our family. Um, it didn't really exist when my biological dad was in the picture um, because I don't think that my mom had the ability to also be doing that in addition to running the household and working full time and all of the other things. Um, but once we had a, like, once we had a structure that was able to support it, we could, could embark on this like family learning together. That must've been so special and, and really bonded you, you know, I, cause I was actually wondering how your mom went from, you know, when you're eight and you tell her, I want to be a Jew. And she's like, absolutely not to then herself becoming one. And I guess it was that shift, right. Of you know, opening her mind up and being, allowing yourself to be curious. 
And I think I like my mom never had an issue with me wanting to understand Judaism. Like that was something she wanted me to do. Right. Her issue was more of like, this isn't what people do. We've got, uh, you know, a hundred people coming to the house in two weeks. Like, do not embarrass me. You're going to get up there at church and you're going to say what you're supposed to say. You know what I mean? Like, I think it was more from that angle. And also, I mean, eight-year-olds come home and they say, like, I'm going to be, you know, an astronaut or a fireman or whatever. And it's like, okay, uh, we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. You know, I don't, I I think that her response was totally reasonable. And um, it wasn't like a, I I kind of say it a little bit in this, you know, combative way, because we did, we kind of like argued about it, but not in like, there was no trauma around it it was like very much like i understood what she was saying and i was like fine i'm gonna do my thing once i get the chance to you know it was like that kind of um energy about it but i yeah did she convert around the same time you did so i started the process earlier she converted before i did so that they could get married in the synagogue Um, and then she went on, she, you know, she became a bat mitzvah. She did an adult bat mitzvah with a group of people at the synagogue and, um, yeah, it's like very cool. And, and so my stepfather has four kids, uh, um, and so I have 10 nieces and nephews. Um, and so it's, it's, I, I have this really interesting kind of experience of, um, even though I converted, I technically have three Jewish parents, right? Wow. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> um, and even though I converted, I have Jewish nieces and nephews and Jewish siblings Yeah, that are older than me. Wow. So That's like, so, um, so it, it's, it's kind of this thing that I think is a very, like, I, I think it, it, um, because my experience is both one of being insider and outsider, um, I think it allows me to, um, to naturally be a a person who welcomes people in because I understand what it is to be on the outside. Oh, I love that. And that's the concept of the outsider is so Jewish. Yeah. I mean, I just, especially American Jews, I, I just, that is such a core theme and feeling. And I'm curious, thinking about converting in high school and becoming president of your youth group and going to Israel and all of this so quickly, what do you think was maybe the most defining memory from that period of your life? Mm. That is, well, it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to pick. There are a couple of things. Um, I was not, I was, I was very nervous to go to the mikvah, um, this ritual bath because I'm 15 years old at the height of like body insecurity. You have to be totally naked. It's a private ceremony, but it it felt really scary and I really didn't want to do it. And, um, Rabbi Safin was like, you need to do it. Um, and I was like, but I have Jewish ancestry. And he was like, no, you had a baptism and a communion. And those are two like affirming ceremonies in another faith tradition. You you need to do this. Yeah. 
And I went to the mikvah and I was terrified. And um, there are all of these steps in order to make it valid. Like you have to like clean, you know, you have to floss your teeth. You have to clean your ears. You have to take off all of your, everything needs to be removed so that there's nothing that's a barrier between you and the water. And I was terrified I was going to do something wrong. (laughs) And so I spent a really long time trying to like cleaning, like every, like under my nails, like very, whatever. Um, And then when I went into the room, um, it was just like beautiful, like marble, sort of like, like fancy marble hot tub, almost looking um, this small pool. And I was so surprised because of how like gentle the water felt. The water is heated to about human body temperature. So it feels like almost like maybe a sensory deprivation chamber, like that sort of that, that sense of like being held. And I just like, when I was in the water and uh, you, you have to immerse three times. And when I immersed and like felt that sensation of like floating and being suspended in this really nurturing, like substance, um, I, like, I still feel that in my body. I still feel that, that, that sense of being held and loved the healing and and so this thing that I was basically like I don't want to do this I don't want to do it it ended up being like this really incredible experience um that like I it's so impactful like I still feel that it feels like it was imprinted in my body that's so special and beautiful I I can feel that I can imagine that so clearly I gosh and yeah, that sounds just so healing. And and that feeling you were talking about of remembering, I feel like that would be such a remembering connection there. Um, wow. Yeah. How about that? That's, that's so cool. And that was just, you know, the beginning of your journey in Judaism. Um, and I'm so curious to hear, you know, how you decided on Lafayette and if you knew at that point that you want to end up on the rabbinical school path. Yeah. So, um, I, I actually, I, I wanted to be on Broadway. That was where I was going oh, professionally. Amazing. <laughs> so, um, when I was in high school, I, you know, I was like very much into theater. I was dead set on going to NYU, um, for their musical theater program, but I wasn't accepted. And, um, then I was sort of like thrown into a tizzy because I, I really hadn't looked at any other colleges. (laughs) Um, and then I ended up my first semester just going to Drew university, which is in New Jersey. That actually is my ABBA's alma mater. And I'd gotten a scholarship and it was just kind of easy for me to go there, but it wasn't the school for me. I was dating somebody, uh, my high school boyfriend went to Lafayette and Lafayette was very much the opposite of what I ultimately wanted to be at. I was like, I want to be in a big city. Wanna, you know, I was going to be in, you know, New York or Boston or Chicago or something like that. And, um, and Lafayette's definitely not, not that. that. Yeah. Um, but once the, once the, uh, the sort of like shine of Broadway and like this, like very clear path from, you know, high school stardom to professional stardom, uh, became like, you know, not so shiny. 
Um, I was like, well, the other thing that I love in my life is Jewish stuff. And I thought I wanted to be a cantor. So, um, you know, having this like music, you know, playing guitar or whatever. Um, and when I visited my boyfriend at Lafayette, um, I, he took me to Hillel, of course. Um, (laughs) and I think it was like a random Friday night. The place was like packed. Um, and it made me feel like what it was like to be a Temple Shalom, where it was just like all the people in the room were people I wanted to talk to. Yeah. They were all like cool. Um, you know, not everybody in the room was Jewish. It was just like the spot that you went on Friday night before you and like coordinated with people, and that's where, you, and then you'd like figure out what you were doing later on. Oh, it's still how it is. It's totally still how it is, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That that's as eternal as Torah. Like, <laughs> I love, I love it. That's so true. It's you know, it really is. Um, I mean, I lived there with my friend who's Catholic. Um, you know, it's just, it was always, it is always the space for community and for, I always say like Jews and people who like us, you know, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's like, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a gathering place really. Right. Um, and so I just kind of loved it. And then it, it became clear that that's what I wanted to do and that I was, um, I, I wanted to double major in music and religious studies and uh, there it's hard to find programs that you can do that because many music programs are like totally, that's oh, all you do. Yeah. And, um, a lot of big schools don't have religious studies programs. Um, and so Lafayette had both religious studies and music and also a theater program that I could participate in without being a major, um, and, and so like, I think those were some of the things that, you know, drew me there. Um, and it was absolutely, it was absolutely the best place for me. Um, I, I will never forget, um, the first day that I transferred and I transferred mid-year freshman year, which is kind of a hard transfer to do. Um, and I was walking across, across the quad, um, and I heard my name called, um, from across the quad because somebody who I'd met at Hillel re- recognized me, saw me, and he was like, Jess Lenza. <laughs> That's, people call me as though I had one name, Jess Lenza. Jess Lenza. And he called me over and he was like, you have to come tomorrow's Monday. We have our Hillel board meetings on Monday. Uh, and um, so literally from the first day that I was on campus, I was on Hillel board. I'm obsessed. That's amazing. And it just, it was the place for you. It was where you were. It was Bichert, you know? It was Bichert. It was Bichert. And, you know, I like, just like I was fortunate to have um, Rabbi Soften, Bob, uh, you know, the former director. Um, he, he was a really, another really important mentor to me. I learned a lot from him and, um, you know, the other faculty advisors, including, of course, Ethan. Yeah. Um, and, um it was, it was, again, it was this right space for me where I had, um, you know, my, some of my best friends were people that I met through Hillel and it gave me an opportunity to be a leader, gave me a space for me to be creative, to play guitar and to sing, to, um, to organize and all of that. Like it was, it was really important for me. Um, and a really nurturing place for me. Yeah. Gosh, that's so beautiful. It was, it was a haven and everybody knew from the moment they met you, that's where you were supposed to be. Um, I'm, I'm so curious. What positions did you end up with? 
Oh, I just wanted to be the religious and cultural VP. That was it. That was all I wanted. I didn't want to deal with the, like, I, I didn't want to deal with any of the uh, running of the organization. Like, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to like, let me be creative about what Havdala is going to look like. Let oh. me like, whatever. And um, so my very good friend, Benji Berlo was president at some point and he and I, um, uh, we were counselors at a BBYO camp together during college. Um, we were song leaders there. And um, so the end of my senior year, we recorded a CD, which is totally embarrassing. Um, I think it's called Friday Night on the Hill. We found and- it. We found oh it. my God. Okay. That's so funny. I remember I, I, I think we couldn't find a CD player, but we desperately wanted to listen to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's so that's, fun that's we so like fun. recorded the whole thing in this like in another student's basement like it's <laughs> like amazing. I think it was like one day where we just like recorded all of these tracks like like Benji was playing guitar mostly and he, his fingers were bleeding like we were just we're going you know hardcore with it but um yeah yeah so <laughs> wow so you know being VPRC I mean I was VPRC and it was the best and just so much fun to lead services, to get people excited about the music. Um, were there, are there, and I don't know if they're the same like songs you especially connect to. I'm thinking of, you know, like that beginning of Amida feeling. Yeah. I mean, yes, there look, Jewish music is, um, I think it's, 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 it's something that really, um, speaks to me. And so there are a lot of songs, a lot of melodies that are meaningful to me and many of them that harken back to a different time. Um, and, um, so I, like, I think there's some, you know, some real, you know, some real bangers, uh, you know, that Danny Nichols wrote like early two thousands, Danny Nichols of like, uh, you know, um, these are songs that I feel like I have a a connection to because of how fun they are to sing more than like, oh, they're part of like, they're sort of like igniting my spiritual sparks or something. It's all part of it. It's all all part of it. And then of course, like, you know, Debbie Friedman, um, I, I, she, her music was really the first kind of contemporary Jewish music that I was exposed to. And, um, you know, she was a folk style musician and, um, she has a really beautiful version of the Shema, which is a central prayer in Judaism that is sort of like a lullaby. And um, I just loved how like gentle it is. And then it goes into this English translation of another prayer called Via Hafta, which is also really sort of like beautiful and and like very lyric kind of. Um, and so I, I think that those are like, uh, those are some of the nostalgic kind of Jewish music for me. And then there are incredible Jewish musicians today that I really love. Um, There is a group of three female um, composers and musicians who are independent, but then they come together to sing um, songs uh, as a group. Um, It's uh, Chava Morel, Deborah Saxman, and um, Alana Arian. And uh, when they come together as a group, they're New Moon Rising. And their sound is just like breathtaking it's just incredible um so i really love listening to them um and supporting their work that's fabulous yeah i gosh that's so cool you guys to record the cd i i'm gonna find a way to listen to it i can't even wait <laughs> i mean 
I, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> I, oh, I know. It, I know it happened. If you want to listen to better music, I, I, well, really, I should update this, but I have some recordings on my website. If you want oh, to listen to so me cool. sing, you can do that. I have some recordings of me doing like um, performances and stuff. I, so because I have this performance background, one of the things that I do in my rabbinate is um, sacred dramatic translations. So I look at, so in the course of the service, um, instead of reading from the actual text, um, I will sometimes perform like a monologue or a scene oh. or some kind of interpretation of what's happening to kind of make it more modern and um, feel like more present and relevant. Um, I think, you know, but, and more personal. And I yeah. think that's bringing in the full circle of your Broadway theater background. And I'm wondering, I, you know, we talked about this the last time we were together in person, but I'm curious about if there were roles you played growing up um, or anything from theater that, you know, inspired you on your way that you, that is still with you today. I mean, 100%. The most important role that I ever played was when I was at Lafayette, um, I was in my senior year and I, I was in a show called Boy Gets Girl. And I played the, the main character who um, is a, a journalist living on the Upper East Side. I'm currently living on the Upper East Side who goes on a blind date and um, is, uh, and the person she goes on the blind date with stalks her and terrorizes her. Jeez. And um, that play, um, to in order to play that role, like I did a lot of research and I spoke to pretty much every woman in my life who had experienced some kind of like threatening, um, stalking-like situation. Some people um, were sort of like minor and kind of creepy, but other people who really experienced something that I think was criminal um, and kind of wrote it off as though it was normal as though like, well, you know, and what part of the message of this play was challenging the, uh, the, um, cultural norm that like, uh, you know, she's just playing hard to get. And if you continue to pursue her, she'll come around. Yeah. And, um, and that was really so eye opening to me. And I happened to be taking, um, a class at the same time, um, called religion women and society or something like that yeah that was um it, it was a phenomenal class and so taking that class doing this research and playing that part was really the first time that I did any serious like exploration into feminism and into the understanding the 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 patriarchal structure of our society and um that sparked for me a real passion in in um in feminism definitely advocacy around feminism and also understanding judaism from a feminist lens um and so that 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 to me i think is the most impactful role that i've ever played um, and it, and it's something that I go back to over and over again. Um, I have actually, I have the playbill from that framed in my, my yeah. bookshelves outside. Yeah. Um, because it was just, it was such an important thing for me to do, 
but um you know theater theater what i really think that theater does is it's um a training ground for empathy building because if you are embodying a character that means that you have to imagine yourself as another person right and another set of circumstances you know and that, that's right that's right a building block for connection i think and if you've played a character like someone you meet that's automatically something you have in common and i think it it sharpens your sort of desire to want to understand how other people function in the world yes. and that and that to me is is such an important skill uh, and, and theater does a lot of other things too. I think it's about collaboration and teamwork, about understanding when you should be in the spotlight and when it's time for somebody else to be in the spotlight. It's uh, understanding story and how to make a story come alive, um, how to slip between fiction and nonfiction, um, how, you know, like all of those things I think are really important and incredibly uh important skills for me in my career yeah. um and uh so I draw on my on my experience as a performer constantly in my work as a rabbi whether it's in like a, a setting where it looks similar to performing like when I'm leading services or it's in a setting where it doesn't look like I'm performing when I'm like counseling somebody and I'm really drawing on those empathy muscles which I trained uh, during my time as a, as an actor. Wow. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And just the idea that, uh, in a way, I think there are pieces of both in each other, you know, and I think about theater and, um, and Jewish leadership, you know, two things I love also, um, I think about how Jewish leadership a lot of times is a very authentic performance, you know, in a sense. And then theater is, in a way, part of yourself. You know, you're always, I, I feel like it's impossible to play a role without bringing some of yourself into it. Um, yeah, that's, that's such a cool back and forth. And I'm curious, you know, that quintessential senior year, right, where you're playing the, the, um, the role that changed everything, um, the famous role, and, um, and you're taking this wonderful class, um, and you're figuring it all out. Is that when you maybe shift from I'm going to be a cancer to what if I thought about rabbinical school? Now that shift didn't happen until after I went to cantorial school. Really? Oh my gosh. So <laughs> what was cantorial school like? So I graduated, um, college and like six weeks later, I was in Jerusalem at, in cantorial school at HUC at Hebrew Union College. Um, and I spent that first year in Jerusalem there, but when, when I went to cantorial school, it was like, I don't think I really understood what it was to be a rabbi or a cantor. I think I was like, I like playing songs. I like leading services. That's what cantors do. Yeah. And yes, that is, but, um, the role of a cantor is broader than that. It's really about being the person who the Jewish clergy person who holds all of Jewish musical tradition. Mm. And while I love music, I'm not like, I do not have the passion or the drive to like learn Jewish music pieces that I'm not going to sing. That you're not connected. right. Yeah. It, it, that like, I don't like learning these through composed Shabbat 
pieces, which are beautiful, but like the choral pieces, I'm not going to sing that. Like I, my style is I've, I've got me and my guitar and I just want everybody to sing along with me. And like, I want to know like the four or five versions of this prayer that people can sing along with. And maybe like one that's a little bit more fancy, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but it. I, I wanted something that was slightly different. I didn't understand that until I went to cantorial school and I started to, like, I saw that distinction and which I just was unaware of before I went uh, to cantorial school. And I also realized um, that I hadn't done very serious Jewish text study until I went to cantorial school. And I was like, oh no, this is what I'm interested in. Right. Like I'm packing. This is what I want to know. Because, because like, I always loved literature. I always liked story and um, Jewish literature is fascinating and sort of endless. There's so much to read. There's so much to learn and so much to understand. And everything has like many, many layers to it. Um, And it was just like really exciting to discover these things and styles and genres of literature, which are unique to Judaism. And so it was like that those two things like uh, sharpened for me the that like the kind of Jewish professional that I wanted to be was somebody who was connected to Jewish music um, and still sang and led services and all of that, but was a singing rabbi um, so that I could uh, also focus more on like teaching and text. I think that's revolutionary. You know, to combine the parts of both that spoke to you. I think that's so beautiful because Right. When I think of a cancer, my cantor growing up could recite, you know, any passage of Torah at the drop of a hat. And that that just doesn't seem like, you know, if I was going to do it, that wouldn't be what I would want to focus on. Um, even though it's Look, I'm very I'm glad that there are people out there who want to do that. Sure. It was just sure. it just became obvious that was not for me. So I, I spent two years in cantorial school and then um I left school and I taught for a couple of years at Central Synagogue, which is a large synagogue in um, Manhattan. Oh, wow. And I was teaching kids um, uh, like third to seventh grade um, in their very big school. And we were employed full time. Um, and that was where I really cultivated this love for education um, and understanding how to be a good educator for different age groups. Um, create curriculum, lesson plans, be creative in that way. Um, and then I knew I wanted eventually to become a rabbi. So I applied to a uh, rabbinical school in London, actually. That's um, amazing. Wow. And, and, and I got into the school, but I had issues getting my visa because of England's student visa laws that had changed after a terror attack um, where um, the terrorists came into England under false student visas. And so because of that bureaucracy, my I was not allowed to go there for a year. It was delayed for a year. And so in that interim, I went to study at um, Pardes, which is a a, a yeshiva, a place of Jewish study in Jerusalem um, that is it has a traditional approach in that 
you are studying the texts, the Jewish texts from the original, and they teach you those text skills. But it was innovative and sort of like cutting edge because it was co-educational. So um, there were men and women, people of all genders, studying at Pardes, which is a really unusual thing. Um, or at, at, definitely at that time, it was an unusual thing um, that there was an opportunity for people who were not themselves identifying as Orthodox to study in an, in kind of like an Orthodox way. Um, and so I spent a year studying in Jerusalem there. Um, then I did go to England, um, the following year. And after that, I decided to transfer to Boston and where I was, where I ultimately got my ordination, um, from Hebrew college in Boston. Um, and, uh, and really that was about me being homesick um, and wanting to be back in the States and also acknowledging that like building a career in a foreign country where you are not the citizen of that country is like real hard. It's I can't even imagine. So um, it was great. I got to learn. I learned a whole lot about myself and about European Judaism and I'm so glad that I did it, but I'm also glad that I came back to the States because really that was, that was the right move for me. Uh, yeah. You got, you know, a little bit, a, a little exposure. I think that was so the move. I mean, I, I don't even think I could do that. Just being away from home for a year, you know, I, that just. Well, ultimately I lived, uh, I lived outside of the States for three years because I lived in Israel for two years and I lived in um, London for a year. I think living abroad is a, to me, I think it's an essential thing that people should do. I think it helps you discover yourself. Um, uh, actually the, the, in the Torah, our first Jewish family is Abraham and Sarah. And the two of them, um, in order to like begin this like special relationship with God and, um, with this like new religion that they're building, they have to leave, they have to leave their, where they're from. And they go, they journey from Mesopotamia to the edge of the known world to them at that point. And that kind of travel, that kind of getting out of your regular self is, I think, so liberating and um, eye-opening. And so I like, I really feel incredibly grateful for those experiences. Absolutely. And then, um, and then uh, my... <laughs> Just like I, I challenge you to find another rabbi who starred as Jesus in her Sunday school play. I, I challenge you to find another rabbi who has studied on three different continents um, and, you know, in many different schools of higher Jewish education. And I mean, like, really, I, I, I don't know. There's some things here that I think I've got some Guinness Book, Book of World Records, like records. Oh, on. for sure. We, we might need to take a, an international poll. I mean, I, I'm just dying to know. I, wow. I, so then what was that? What was the, how was the experience different in Israel versus England versus Boston? You know, what were those different communities like? Yeah, they're very different, very distinct. Um, so in America, the dominant uh, denomination is reform Judaism or unaffiliated. Yeah. Um and that's that's the default because Reform Judaism was imported, you know, it immigrated here from Europe um, with German Jewish, primarily German Jewish immigrants, and um, it aligns very nicely with American ideals of democracy and freedom and egalitarianism and things like that. Um, so it really kind of like took hold and took off here in America. But in the 
uh, in the rest of the world, um, Jewish communities, the default is some version of Orthodox or traditional. And that's the case in Israel. And that's the case in Europe. Um, there are progressive Jewish communities there. They're just not the default. And so you have a large group of the Jewish population that are secular and the synagogue that they don't go to is, is an Orthodox synagogue. Like they wouldn't necessarily think about going to a progressive synagogue um, because it it feels like, no, the option is Orthodox or nothing. Right. Wow. And, And that's really, I think a big part of both Israeli Judaism and, um, and Judaism in the UK, at least when I was there. Um, the thing about living in the UK that was eye-opening, particularly eye-opening to me was that of course I understood that the Holocaust devastated world Jewry, but I didn't really appreciate that until I spent more time in Europe. Because a lot of Holocaust studies focuses on the years of the war. Right. It doesn't talk necessarily about what came before and what came after. And um, the this the scope of what was lost, um, the fact that you know six million Jews. Well, that was a third of Jewish of the Jewish population in the world, right? A third of the Jewish population in the world was murdered and two thirds of European Jewry was murdered. And so when I would visit these Jewish communities throughout Europe, inevitably the conversation was about, well, what happened before the war, what happened after the war and just seeing the devastation and the repetition of that devastation throughout the continent was like it, 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 it brought it to reality in a way that studying it in America or in Israel had never done for me. Um, and like, just, you know, going to Denmark and, um, for instance, uh, one of my classmates in London, uh, she was from Copenhagen and she invited me to Copenhagen to spend Passover with her and her family. And her mom like brought us to, you know, the, the um, river. And she was like, oh, and this is where we were smuggled from Copenhagen to Sweden in fishing boats um, to survive. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and that's like a very different experience than, um, than like reading a book or watching a documentary or something it's so it's so right in front of you and you can imagine it being you I think yes and you and it was her (laughs) like it was her like that's what she did she like laid down in a fishing boat and she was smuggled across the water at night um and like thankfully she was not caught and she was able to survive and then after the war she came back to Copenhagen and you know it is uh really a very different experience than what we understand like our understanding of world war ii the holocaust is so removed um even though it feels very much a part of our consciousness the 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 like tangible elements of it i think are really distilled it's not right we don't we aren't forced to think about it every day that's right i think it's it's very personal it's very connected and related but right it's not as 
as front and center as it sounds like it was there. Yeah. I mean, like you're walking along the beach and it's like, oh, and this is where I left. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this is this is how I escaped murder yeah. or, um, you know, you just see like the building or the tiny little plaque that commemorates however many people were murdered here or the really lovely looking park that is actually a mass grave. Um, you know, like things like that, which we don't, we are not confronted in that way in our American Jewish lives. Right. It just reminds me of, did you ever read People Love Dead Jews, Dara Horn? Um, I haven't read the whole book, but I love her podcast, which is Adventures with Dead Jews. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes me think of all of these communities lost to time that people don't know about, people don't think about, you know, the the Jews of Harbin, China, you know, just all of these communities that were and should still be, you know, it's just, wow. It's really, it's something I don't think before two years ago I ever considered, you know, that, right. I, I think a lot of times people like to reduce anti-Semitism and Jewish violence to 1937 to 1945. And yes. that's, one percent of it you know i 100 percent agree i think that's true i think that we have been taught that there was there was almost like this alien race that descended on the world and they were called yes. the nazis yeah. and they were so evil and they like temporarily like they temporarily they popped up in the 1930s and then the powers of good defeated them and so they're they're no longer here and that's not how anti-Semitism works, um, that the, the Nazis were a natural extension and escalation of thousands of years of hatred against the Jews and violence against Jews. And um, the the, the uh, sanitization of their legacy and the, the cleansing of other, uh, of other, countries, people who are complicit in um, the mind numbing, uh, like systematic extermination of the Jewish people during those years, but not exclusively during those years, right? They're sort of like uh, absolved of their involvement because we've now blamed it all on Nazis. Right. And so anyone else, right, exactly. Just gets to forfeit all blame, doesn't have to think about it, thinks it's some evil of the past that has nothing to do with right now. Um, yeah, I just, I find it so compelling and important to talk about. I And that must have been such a, such an informing, you know, important experience. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, when you finish up your schooling in Boston, um, did, did those experiences all factor into rebel rabbi, you know, everything that came afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm sort of a, you know, a collection of the things that I've lived through. And so when I present myself to the world, it's like all of those, you know, like Taylor Swift, all of those arrows. <laughs> I love Taylor Swift. Yeah, I love <laughs> Oh my gosh, me too. What era are you in? Uh, I, well, right now I'm like dying for reputation oh, TV to I come can't out. Wait. I can't wait. I'm so Because like, I cannot wait for that album to come out. I can't wait for all of the vaults, like um, song. Like I just, I cannot wait. I, um, but I, I mean, mm, 
Midnight's. Uh, well, like they're all good. They're all good. So good. Lover's my favorite, I think, but Reputation's up there. Ugh. So good. good. Love her. Love her. She's yeah that so so similar to taylor swift i have i embody all of those different eras of myself and um you know when i looked for a position um you know it was it was a tough job market um i eventually um really focused in early on i focused in uh, religious school education um because of you know like i'm interested in education i had experience in it and that those were the jobs that were available to me um but i always wanted to do something that was i don't know a little more outside the box um i didn't quite have the uh courage to do it until i was forced to do it so I uh, ran religious schools for a few years and then I was doing adult education, adult programs. Um, And then 2020 happened and my position was eliminated because our synagogue shrank. It it was like, it shrank by a third in the span of three months. Um, And so they can no longer afford to keep me on. And I was devastated, but it ended up being the literal best thing for me. Um, Blessing because it it gave me the push that I needed to try and do something on my own. Um, and, and that really, and it also opened up people to thinking about using an independent rabbi, as opposed to joining a community uh, or not doing anything. Um, and so, um, it sort of shifted the demand, (laughs) um, making it easier for me to supply, um, and I was very fortunate to, um, to connect to another rabbi who had built her own independent community, uh, Rabbi Jamie Korngold, um, who is known as the adventure rabbi. And she really, oh, it's fun. Yep. She really helped me get some clients early on, um, and some, and some teaching and things like that. And to explore life as an independent rabbi, um, somebody who travels all over the world to bring Judaism to, people, um, wherever they are, wherever they need me. So, um, you know, like that kind of like freelance jet setter lifestyle, I think is kind of a, you know, it's a natural extension of who I was, this unusual path to the rabbinate, um, that I, you know, my tagline is I'm a rabbi for the rest of us. Um, I, wow. Well, I'm so curious though, when you say clients, like what, what does that look like? So uh, people reach out to me, maybe they want to do private education for themselves or for their children or for their families. Um, many people reach out to me so that I can officiate at a ceremony for them. Um, a lot of weddings, a lot of b'nai mitzvah, some baby namings, um, and some funerals. Um, uh, and I also have like people who will maybe like hire me for like a small group presentation or like a concert or a service or something like that, either through a community or like, you know, maybe they have like a, an association at their, you know, in their residential development, that's like Jewish life or something. Um, and then, you know, coming to Hillel and doing, doing what I do at Hillel. Um, and, uh, and then I work with, um, more regularly with institutions here in New York. So I work part-time at B'nai Jeshurun, which is a community on the Upper West Side. 
Um, I also teach at the Stryker Center um, at Temple Emanuel, which is on the Upper East Side. And then I teach at the Village Temple, which is downtown. Um, sometimes my uh, colleagues will um, ask me to cover for them for like a Shabbat service or something like that. Um, I have a high holiday congregation um, in Hawaii. That's um, so cool. Which is very cool. So they bring me out for Hawaii. They bring, or sorry, for Hawaii. They bring me out to Hawaii for the high holidays and also for Passover, um, which is really kind of amazing. How did that um, so fabulous. I just sort of like random, like a friend of mine saw a job posting and was like, do you, are you interested? And I was like, I sure am. Um, and, uh, you know, connected me to them. I work with another rabbi who lives in Maryland, but she goes, um, she's been going there for high holidays for like seven or eight years. Um, and she's remarkable. Rabbi Miriam Berg, um, very fortunate to have met her and to be working with her. She's brilliant and incredibly creative and, I mean, it's just like so exciting to be working with her. And and really, I'm at this point in my career where I kind of have the best of all worlds because I'm, I have my own autonomy. I have the ability to be creative, but I also get to collaborate with incredible um, professionals like Rabbi Miriam Berg or Rabbi Sarah Rhinus. I, there's, there's so many incredible people that I get to work with. Um, and I get to do a whole variety of things. So like each day is a little bit different and, um, I get to build my own schedule. Like all of those things are really great. I get to travel to meet people. I get to watch this incredible transformation of like somebody who comes to me, maybe a little tentative, not really knowing what they want or what, what the ask is. Um, and then like watching them like grow in their understanding and their connection to their identities to themselves. And that's really like an incredibly fulfilling and process. And I feel really honored to be a part of it. And then, you know, people, people ask you, this is what Rabbi Safin said to me, and I'll never forget this. He was like, I, I get to be a part of the miracles in people's lives. Yeah. And that to me is like, oh, that is so amazing. Like what, what, how fortunate am I that I get to be like in it, in this moment that is so like impactful and iconic in, in somebody's life. And like, I feel very honored to do that. And um, it feels almost like magic when I get to be a part of that. Wow. That's so, um, gosh, I wish there was a word stronger than heartwarming that would occur in my mind right now. I, that's so beautiful. And it's true, you know, like it's very Nescadolhiapo, you know, it's very, um, which is a great miracle happened here. It's from the Hanukkah story. Um, but I'm just so struck by that. I'm so struck by the idea that people invite you into their lives and then you change them and you transform and you introduce them to that new, better version of themselves that we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, that religion can be a tool for that. Yeah. Well, I would say I don't change them. They change on their own. Like, I think what I do is I give them some options for some tools, for some understanding, for some, you know, an outlet, a way at like an opportunity for them to do that kind of change. Right. And, and that eyes. to me, yeah. Yeah. I have to say it's magical. Like I'm thinking about, I officiated at a wedding yesterday Yeah, and 
you know, I've officiated at a lot of weddings, um, but it doesn't lose that, that feeling of just like connecting to that moment, which is somehow both fleeting and eternal. That is all about the couple that is standing in front of me and about actually all of humanity that's ever existed ever. And, and like standing at that intersection and being kind of a conduit for this energy to like flow through and to like, I feel like I just feel this shift in the room and in myself and it feels like magic. Wow. That's so, that's so beautiful. And it just reminds me of what you were saying about the mikvah of this feeling of being held and it's like with your words and your help along the journey and the transformation, you're holding people and you're nursing them to a new stage in their life. That's, God, that's just so, it's got to be so special and fulfilling. And I'm especially curious about the conversion aspect of it. You know, how is that thinking back on your journey? How, how does that feel when you help people in the conversion process? Um, it is, I, I mean, like, it's really, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Yeah. It's a remarkable thing. So I, I think, um, I think particularly in this time right now, we're seeing so much where the Jewish community is facing so much adversity, yeah. um, when there are people who come to you with such like sincere desire to join your community, it's like, like they give me such hope. Yeah. And, um, I, I learned so much about, about me, who I am and what Judaism is or could be like, through their journey, like being a, being like a, an observer on their journey or guide along the way. Um, and I think that this, my like unique set of experiences that I've, <laughs> I've worked that, that I, I come from an, a non-normative Jewish background, I guess you could say. Um, I've lived in several places and have worked in Jewish communities that span the spectrum of Jewish practice and ideology and custom. And um, it's really kind of prepared me to be the person who welcomes you in, because I, I think I can, I can translate to people like, here's, here's this incredible tapestry of Jewish experience and like, here's an option and here's an option and here's an option. And I can connect you to these things or these people or these communities, these ideas, right? Like, it's just very um, energizing. Yeah, it's it's your air store, I think. I mean, it's just, right. It's the experiences you've had of that eight-year-old who realizes she's a Jew, her heart and soul, um, and, you know, the 12-year-old who begins exploring and the 15-year-old who begins the process of converting um, and, you know, the college student who records the CD, the cantorial student, you know, working 
um, working so hard to figure out what you truly want, working in these different uh, different communities in the interim, you know, living in all these places, studying rabbinical texts, um, your role right up until the pandemic, and now you've recreated and revolutionized based on all of those pieces of you. And I, I just think that's so fabulous. And you figure out what people need and you look into your own experience and your passions and and you cater to each specific person and it's always different. That's that's amazing. <laughs> that, that, that's like a, a very flattering summary of what I've just been saying. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Of course. No, but I'm I'm just so struck and inspired. I mean, just every time we talk, every time I see you lead services and bring people in who maybe it's not their thing. Maybe they've had a bad day, um, but you just, you engage them and you meet people where they are. I think you're bringing that to people. You're a voice and a vessel for compassion, empathy, understanding, and connection. Um, and I'm just really grateful to you. Thank you for chatting with me and sharing your journey. Um, and uh, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I, I again want to thank you for asking me. I mean, what what a uh, pleasure it is to be able to spend some time talking about who I am and sharing a little bit about my philosophy. It's really it's it's a it's a it's an honor. Um, and I, um, I think the other thing that gives me hope is seeing, uh, you know, the next generation taking up the mantle, the hard work of making this world a better place of tikkun olam, repairing the world. And, um, it is, as you probably could tell from the times that I came to Hillel and like immediately started crying from how emotional it was for me to be in the room, just, (laughs) just to be around such, such, um, you know, incredible people who I, Oh man, I hope you do a better job with this world than, than we have been. Um, and I, and I think that's maybe possible with your generation. Um, and, um, you know, I hope that in whatever small way I can, that I, I do whatever I can to make this world, you know, a little bit better than how I found it when I, when I was, um, granted the opportunity. Absolutely. And you just, you bring hope and inspiration um, every, every day and every time you come see us. So, you know, when Rabbi Lenza is back, everybody listening should come to Hillel. Absolutely. <laughs> every chance you get, it's, it's magical. I love that word. I think that's absolutely perfect. I just, I just remember sitting there this last time and just watching and I just, I, I was in another place. It was ex- so exactly what I needed. Um, and I think everybody felt the same way. Um, wow. Well, yeah, Rabbi Jess Lenza, thank you so much for everything. Well, thank you. And um, if folks are looking to connect to somebody to learn more about Judaism, if you want to talk about religion or politics, if you want to ask those questions that are maybe beyond polite conversation, I'm a person that you can do that with. You can, of course, follow me on Instagram. I'm the rebel rabbi with like T-H-E, the rebel rabbi. Um, and I am also, uh, preparing to release my own podcast, um, through B'nai Jeshurun, um, and it's called, this is like a, a preview. Um, it's called in times like these, um, where we, uh, each episode is focused on finding a source of hope or inspiration to, um, propel us through a world, um, you know, or through times like these. Um, and so, um, I, you know, we'll certainly be in touch and let you know when that 
when that is launching, if folks oh, are interested in listening. Absolutely. You'd love it. Yeah. And then um, beyond that, I do um, some, you know, out of the box education, like um, pop culture, theology, or bad girls of the Bible. Um, and I have a few other signature courses and, you know, people either take them as small groups or individually or things like that. Um, it's, I think, um, you don't have to be Jewish to be interested in it. You don't have to be, there's no prerequisite. Um, and, uh, and I'm just a person that, you know, like I said, I'm a rabbi for the rest of us. So if you need me, I'm here. Rabbi for the rest of us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening.